Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Genesis 18 through 23. There's a lot happening in this part of the book of Genesis. So I think before we start, it's really good to do a quick overview of these chapters. The 18th chapter of Genesis talks about these holy men that come to Abraham, and they tell him and and Sarah that they're to have a child. And Towards the end of this chapter, Abraham bargains with the Lord when he finds out that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in the next chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and Lot works to save his family. And the 20th chapter is a repeat. This is part of a triplet. So we're going to skip Genesis 20. And the 21st chapter of Genesis is the birth of Isaac, and then the tension between Sarah and Hagar as their children are kind of vying for the birthright. And so Hagar and Ishmael are cast out from Abraham's presence. And then the 22nd chapter is a really big deal. And this has a lot of connection to Christianity because this is the story where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And then the 23rd chapter of Genesis is the death of Sarah and her burial. And so that's kind of a brief overview of what we're going to cover today. And we're really establishing Abraham as the model of the Abrahamic covenant. So we're going to kind of see his greatness. We're going to contrast him with Lot. We're going to see what happens when you don't live up to the Abrahamic covenant and what happens when you do. So a lot of things happening as we establish this covenant in Abraham's life. But what we want to begin with is quite often when a prophet is called, there is an intimate moment with God. Today, we're going to see Abraham's. Isaac will have that moment in Beersheba. Jacob, we'll see, will have that moment where he has a dream and he sees a ladder that's reaching up to heaven. And then he has an intimate moment with God and he calls it Bethel. Well, Abraham has that moment under a tree. And it's very symbolic. So, Mike, tell us about this tree. Okay. We're going to open up chapter 18, where the Lord appears unto Abraham, and it says that he appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself towards the ground. Now you'll note here, if you go to verse 4 of chapter 18, he asks these individuals, these visitors, to wash their feet and rest under the tree. And then he prepares some food in verses five through seven. And then it says that they come again in verse eight under the tree. And there's this thing going on with butter and milk. And then they give the revelation to Abraham that he's to have a son. But I want to just pause for a minute before we get into that promise. Let's go to Genesis 12 really quick. I mean, there was just so much that we had to cover when we did Genesis 12. So we really didn't do this. But I think now is a good time to just stop just for a minute and look at what's happening. So if you go to chapter 12, verse 6, we read this, that Abraham passed through the land of the place of Shechem unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham. Now that phrase, plain of Moreh, 
a lot of translators translate that as tree of moray. And that's going to be directly related to Mount Moriah. There's going to be some wordplay with moray and moriah that we're going to get into later in the podcast. But just know that the phrase alone of moray, alone is a terebinth or a tree. And so in some translations, they go with tree or terebinth and some like the King James, they put plain. But my point is there's something happening here with the tree. So we're going to talk about some things with trees and Abraham and coming to a visionary experience. And I think that those of you that have read the Book of Mormon are going to see things, you're going to make connections. And so I I want to just introduce this idea that it's lost in the King James English because sometimes the word tree isn't even translated, but the concept of coming to a tree is a central part of the visionary experiences of the patriarchs. And it's really not in your face. You kind of got to look for it. But this is a very important image. And if you open up the Book of Mormon at the very beginning, we have this idea of a temple experience, of a visionary experience and coming to a tree. And so this concept of him having this revelation at a tent and under a tree can be directly connected to the temple. Now, one scholar who is a scholar on plants in the Bible wrote this, Abraham, in the context of a visionary experience while being near a tree, is a provocative image. In many commentaries of the word alone is translated as terebinth. Some translators give a different rendering. Ela, alone, el, alon, alon could be rendered as oak, tabor oak, or the evergreen oak, while ela and ala can be rendered as terebinth. The word mora, as it's found in Genesis 12, 6, is an also interesting word. Now, a lot of this is coming from a scholar, Klaus Westerman, and he says this, more can mean teacher, but some scholars speculate that this is a reference to one who gives oracles. To the terebinth of the oracle, more can be in the genitive, the tree of the oracle giver, where the priests who pronounce oracles sat in the ancient times. And then he also suggests that the tree itself gives the oracle. And then he says, sacred trees give omens or oracles, and these things are widespread among all peoples. Westerman suggests that the tree in Genesis 12 is probably the same tree that is in these other places in the Bible. I'm going to give you some references. Genesis 34, 4, Deuteronomy 11, 30, Joshua 24, 24, and Judges 9, 26, and 37. And then Westerman says, This could be a sanctuary. It is a tree that makes it a sacred place. The patriarchal stories often speak of particular trees at particular places. It is a sanctuary, typical of the lifestyle of the patriarchs. This can be demonstrated with the utmost clarity. And Westerman is not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't think that Klaus Westerman has read the Book of Mormon. But the point that I'm trying to make is... The concept of coming to a tree is a central part of the visionary experiences of the patriarchs. Now, another scholar, one of my favorites, a man by the name of Nahum Sarna, and he says regarding the terebinth that Mora, this, this is what he says, Elan Mora undoubtedly is a mighty tree with sacred associations. Moray must mean teacher, oracle, or oracle giver. This tree was so conspicuous and so famous that it served as a landmark. This phenomenon of a sacred tree, particularly one associated with a sacred site, is well known in a variety of cultures. It might be looked upon as the tree of life or a cosmic tree, its stump symbolizing the navel of the earth and its top representing heaven. 
this tree becomes an area of divine human encounter, an ideal medium of oracles and revelation. And then Nahum Sarna says this. Now, we got to unpack this, what he's about to say, because my take on the Bible, you've heard me say this, it's been edited, but here's Sarna's contention. He says, many fertility cults flourished in connection with these trees, and this form of paganism proved attractive to many Israelites. For this reason, the official religion of Israel forbade the planting of trees within the precincts of the altar, as stated in Deuteronomy 16.21. So we got to acknowledge this, that in the Deuteronomistic reforms that they're going to make in the 7th century, the idea of holiness and sacredness associated with trees is going to be removed, and they're going to go against this. But if you read how the Deuteronomists reform their religion, they also do a lot of other things. They say things like, the mysteries cannot be known. God cannot be seen. The temple is not where God dwells. The temple is the place where his name shall dwell. And so there's this radical reform. So if you're listening to me talk about this stuff with trees and oracles and visions, and then you're like, but wait, I've read Deuteronomy and it says not to do that. Just know that that's the inner tension of the Bible that we're trying to illustrate. It's because Satan imitates. So God does something divine. Satan imitates it. And often people, because Satan imitated it, remove it from the true religion as well. They get upset about Satan's imitation, so they go back and they withdraw it from the true religion. That's what happened in Deuteronomy. Because Satan imitated, they got upset and then just kicked it out of the church completely. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there originally, and it doesn't mean that God didn't have some divine reason for implementing. The symbolism of trees flows all throughout the Book of Mormon. Now, let me just throw one more while you're contemplating I was going to say Zenos. We're going to talk about Zenos, right? Not only are we going to talk about Zenos and the allegory of the tree, which is a very Old Testament image, but think of Alma and 32 and planting that seed that becomes the tree. So the imagery here is Abraham is going to sit underneath a sacred tree with God and receive some inspiration. But Abraham grew that tree inside his heart. According to Alma 32, we start by planting a seed that becomes the tree of life whose fruit we then participate in. So you can't have the fruit of the tree until you grow the tree. So what's assumed here is that Abraham is now going to meet with God under the tree and eat the fruit of the tree, but Abraham has spent a good portion of his life growing that tree so that he could then eat the fruit. Again, the covenant and Abraham is so fundamental here that if you grow the tree like Abraham did, God will come and meet you underneath it, and you will feast upon the fruit of that tree, and it will edify you. And think about the image of the tree of Mora in Genesis 12, 6. If Mora does mean oracle, that's going to play significantly in the phrase Mount Moriah, which we're going to read about in a little bit when Abraham sacrifices his son. And if you read these things of the tree through the lens of the Book of Mormon, I think we're reading code. I think what Nephi is trying to tell us is coming to the tree is coming back to God. It's coming home. It's coming back to our mother. It's coming back to the Savior. It's coming back to our Father in heaven. And so if you take First Nephi 8 and 11, use that as a lens with which to read some of these things, we can see that we're talking about the temple and the visionary men of Nephi's time. For example, Nephi and Jacob and these individuals, they're putting back the things that were lost. And Nephi is hinting in his text of the Book of Mormon about the things that the Deuteronomists were opposed to in his day. And I find it fascinating that the temple religion of the early Christian church 
put the tree back in the Holy of Holies. If you do a careful reading of Revelation 22, it's like at the end of your Bible, we have John the Revelator putting the sacred tree right back in the center of the Holy of Holies. The Bible itself is bookended at the beginning and at the end with an image of the tree. And the tree is also other things, right? It's our family. I mean, look, the Book of Mormon starts with a tree, but even the Doctrine and Covenants at the very beginning pages, when Joseph 17 is told about this image of a tree, that we're going to take the roots and we're going to take the branches and we're going to fix it. We're going to put it back together. And as another image, superimpose this, you have the Son of God put on a tree, which fixes everything. So I think this image is kind of cool. I think this image is a big deal. Well, the image of the tree is significant. I love that thought of the roots going into the earth and the branches reaching up into heaven. The image of the tree is that it connects heaven and earth. It is the conduit through which heaven and earth come together, which again is another symbol of the temple. Jacob is going to see a ladder flowing between heaven and earth, and that's going to be Bethel, his temple. So all of these images are very significant, and it shouldn't be surprised you that they come up right now with Abraham at the beginning of the covenant. Trees are a connection from heaven and earth, and Abraham and his covenant are a connection between heaven and earth. Yeah. That all being said, I think the main thing here is really kind of a cool thread. I think this is a really good verse that you could have a really good discussion in a gospel doctrine class or in a with teenagers, and it's verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There's probably countless stories that you can tell from your lives or or the lives of people in church history about how God has moved in their life and helped them and and worked with them. And so I think to me, verse 14 is a great place where you can just kind of sink your anchor and talk about living the gospel. I love it. And that phrase laughed. What's interesting is if you fast forward to 21, to the actual birth of Isaac, Sarah says that God hath made me to laugh. And the footnote tells you that it's a you know, a similar translation to rejoice. So laugh and rejoice kind of have a similar connotation. And I've thought a lot about that. My doubts and my hopes really do come from the same place. My fears and my hopes are tied together. Is Jesus the Messiah we hope he is, or is he the Messiah we're afraid he might be? Because while all my hopes rest on his promises to me, I also am afraid that he knows me better than anyone else, and he knows all my mistakes. And so I think rooted in this, I think there's a little bit of truth to both, that Sarah laughed in, oh, that's ridiculous, but she rejoiced in the possibility that it might happen. And how typical of all of us that when God gives a promise, yeah, there's an element of us that says, really? That that can't happen. I, he really can't love me that much, can he? And there's our fear, but then there's this other side of us that says, oh, but what if he really is that Messiah and he really does love me that much and that really is my blessing and there's the rejoicing. So I love to see the human side of Sarah that there is an element of a fear in her and yet there's an element of hope in her as well. So Bryce, I really like that as laughing, but I also like it as rejoicing. Then there's going to be some wordplay with that word and the name of Isaac. That word to laugh, the Hebrew word is sahak. That's the root verb. So when Isaac gets his name, they're going to add the third person masculine singular yod prefix to sahak. 
Yitzhak, and we say Isaac, but that third person singular imperfect prefix, he will laugh, has some flexibility, some ambiguity. So once again, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the names are telling a story. And so that double meaning in the footnote of 21.6a is really important. I think when we read this stuff, we just got to read it and not be too literal on one way. I think that's what, we're, what I'm trying to say. But I think the text is inviting us to read it this way, that these are stories that have double meanings. And I think that, Bryce, is probably one of the reasons why it was remembered is because it had so many meanings and you could sit and talk about it and debate and look into it and ask questions. And so she's told she's going to have a son. And then there's a shift in the 16th verse of Genesis 18. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I'm to do? And the rest of the 18th chapter, we get into this conversation between Abraham and the Lord about what's to happen to Sodom. Let me throw one thing in right there, Mike, because listen to what God says of his confidence in Abraham. So he's kind of having a conversation with the other three men. Should we tell Abraham what's about to happen? And then he says in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I know him. And he will command his children and his household after him that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. We've got to pause and say, do you see why Abraham is the epitome and the model of the covenant? God himself says, I trust Abraham. I know that Abraham is going to do right and teach his children to do right. Anyway, just a little wonderful little insertion about Abraham. And so from this explanation of who he is, there's also this really interesting bargain that Abraham has with the Lord when the Lord basically asks the question, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham asks the question, should the righteous get destroyed with the wicked? That's Genesis 18.23. And that question is really a big question for the whole Bible. Because one of the questions the authors of the Bible are asking is, why was the temple destroyed? And so this question about destruction and God's will and what he will and will not allow is really interesting to me because that's part of this narrative. That's part of what's going on in Genesis 18 is we're asking these deep theological questions. And the Lord says, no, I'm not going to destroy the the righteous with the wicked. Find me somebody who's righteous. And Abraham essentially bargains with the Lord down to a small number to see if, if you can find some righteous people. Yeah. Abraham and the Lord barter because Abraham knows the kindness and the mercy of God. So God is here being both just and merciful at the same time. Does the story of Sodom and Gomorrah answer the question, will God ever punish the wicked? Will God ever impose the demands of the law upon the wicked? Or do the wicked just get away with it? I mean, you can see that frustration tension. from the exiles and from so many people, from Joseph Smith and Liberty Jill. Oh God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long are you going to let this go on? So there is that question of, is God ever really going to destroy the wicked? And so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah answers that question. Yes, he will rain down fire upon the wicked and free the righteous. So I, I get that side. But what's fascinating is in the very same story, you get to see the mercy of God. 
And I remind you that we've talked about the fact that the Bible has lost plain and precious truths. And the most significant plain and precious truth, if Moses 1 is a type and a pattern of the whole Bible, then we can clearly see in Moses 1 that what was taken out of the Bible is the full nature and disposition and the kind of being that God is. God in his completeness was taken from the Bible. And what was often left is a harsh God, a cruel God, a a distant God that doesn't seem to care. So I think it's very significant when we find his mercy that we we emphasize it to say that's the God of the Old Testament. One of the most significant Old Testament prophets that had a tremendous influence in the Book of Mormon among the prophets of the Book of Mormon was a man named Zenos. And he wrote an allegory about a tree that goes bad and the Lord has to, you know, prune it. He has to do some harsh things to it in order to get it to grow. And he says repeatedly, go back and read Jacob chapter 5 and count how many times he says, it grieveth me to lose this tree. And so here in the very story where the Lord does rain down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah, we find another side to God, the it grieveth me to do this side. So Abraham and the Lord barter because Abraham knows the mercy of God. So the God of Abraham is clearly not the God that the rest of the Old Testament portrays. But listen to what Abraham says in verse 24 of chapter 18. Peradventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. See, that's what Abraham knew, that God will not let the righteous be destroyed, that he will protect those who keep his covenants. And I love that that is the background. So Abraham and the Lord kind of say, well, will you save the city for 50? And the Lord says, yes, I will save the entire city for 50 righteous. Okay, well, what if there's five missing from the 50? Would you save the city for 45? Yes. Would you save the city for 40? Yes. Would you save the city for 30? Yes. Would you save the city for 20? Yes. Would you save the city for 10? If there's 10 righteous people in the city, would you save the city? And the Lord says, yes. That's the nature of God. And that's the one that we've got to remember as you read the Old Testament this year and as you see things that seem to portray harshness and unkindness in God's part or quick to justice. You need to remember that the other side of that has been taken from the Bible, and we have to balance that as we read the text, because the very God that says, I will err on the side of mercy if I can find 10 righteous people in that city, I will save the whole city for those 10. Now, the sad thing is there weren't 10 righteous. Therefore, let's pull whoever is righteous out, and we're going to destroy the city. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful message. Now, another way to read this is through the lens of people that question God's justice. And I think a big question of the Bible, a meta-narrative of this text is, if we're really God's people, where are you? 
And so what if this is read through the exilic lens of the scribal schools or the individuals that were keeping the Bible, that were looking at it and putting it together during the exile, and they've lost their temple, and they loved the Lord, and they're wondering, where is God's justice? The Bible was born out of traumatic experience. And many of you have had traumatic events in your life that have shaped your life and have shaped how you tell your story. And I really do believe that much of this stuff is edited and put together during this period of the exile where they're trying to make their way. And you can imagine Nephi as he's leaving the temple when he leaves, how sad he is. And he, you can even feel his emotion in some of his writings. And so with one lens, we could look at this and say, where is God's justice? Where is it? Yeah. He will rain down fire upon the wicked, but God is here being both just and merciful at the same time. Yeah. Excellent. Now, the 19th chapter of Genesis is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot working to save his family from that destruction. Angels, it says in the text, come to meet Lot at Sodom. And he says in verse 2, Behold, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go in your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. So Lot is a man that's related to Abraham, and Lot seems to come from this background that Abraham comes from, and yet he's surrounded in a very wicked city. And so Lot is going to press them. It says in verse 3, he will press them greatly to not be out on the street. You see, Lot knows what's going on in Sodom at night out on the street, and he's worried about them. And so he presses them to come into his home. And so in this chapter, in the third verse, to the 11th verse is the narrative of the violence of the city of Sodom. But you've got to you, you promise me that you will read the JST, that you'll turn to your appendix and read the JST for Genesis 19, 9 through 15, because the narrative in the King James Version and the narrative in the JST are very different. Yeah, and, and they are. And the thing is, in this podcast, we just... We're not going to spend the time to get into the complexities of the JST versus the King James, but if you're somebody who's sitting here reading the King James and you're troubled, and then you read the Joe Smith translation and you see the difference, and then you're one of these people that says, okay, then why is this in the King James? Why does it say it this way? And if you're that person, there's a really good book by Michael Coogan that we reference in the show notes. I would highly suggest that you read that. He's a great biblical scholar, and what he does is he tries to unpack the complexities of relations in the ancient Near East. And from the perspective of the author, he tries to explain why that is in there. And it's a really good explanation. It's too much for this podcast, and it's probably not really going to appeal to most of you. But if you're one of those people and you're like, but why is this in here? Why does it say it this way? You've got to read Michael Coogan's book. But the point in this podcast that we're going to make is it's a wicked city, lots told to get out, and remember what Bryce said about 10. If we could just get 10. That's really the tragedy here, because if you listen in verse 12, the men say to Lot, is there anyone here in your family that you're going to save? Son-in-law and thy sons. So the men say to Lot, hey, do you want to save your sons? And then he goes out and he speaks to, verse 14, his sons-in-law, which married his daughter. So that's at least two daughters and two sons-in-law. So there's four. In the next few verses, 
Lot, his wife, and his two unmarried daughters leave the city. So verse 15, there's another four. So if we go back to that interesting verse 12, when the angels say, thy sons, if Lot had at least two sons, or if he had more married daughters and more sons-in-law, that makes 10. We're almost there just with what the text is Yeah, just with what the text is clearly saying, we're at eight, and if he had two more sons, or if he had more than just the two married daughters, there's 10. So do you understand maybe why Abraham was getting down to 10? Abraham knew that Lot was 10 people. In other words, he was saying, I believe, Lord, will you save this city for Lot and his family? And the answer is yes. Now, I take you back to Genesis 13, where we introduced the Abrahamic covenant, and we talked about that the covenant of Abraham is to make the Lord's name known in all the earth so that we can bless them with the priesthood so that families can have eternal life. In other words, I have to go out and influence the world. If I do that, I receive all the protective promises that the Lord promised Abraham. But if instead the world influences me, I lose that protection. So think about the tragedy here. If Lot and just his immediate family had not let the world in, but instead had influenced the world, Lot could have saved his family and perhaps even both cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, if you look at verse 14, his sons-in-law don't accept his message. No. His own family rejects him. And I wonder if one of the reasons he lingers in verse 16 is trying to save those kids that weren't coming with him, and he knew that they were going to be destroyed. So go back to that interesting verse where Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. What did that cost Lot? What is it going to cost Lot to let that thread in? We talked about Abraham says, I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. I will not take anything that is thine. I will not let the world in. And yet Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and started letting the world in. And what did it cost him? It cost him his family. And I think one of the messages we need to get this week and last week is that if you let the world influence you, you might get out of Sodom. But it might very well cost you your family. How much better to hold my hand up and say to the king of Sodom like Abraham did, I have made covenants with God that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. I will not let the world in. Now, Lot's wife is an interesting lesson because they were told to flee the city and not look back. Now, the biblical account, Genesis 19, says that his wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I always thought that was a little cruel as a child, that her curiosity got the best of her and God punished her for her curiosity. Until one day I was reading in Luke. Now, you'll notice this in the footnote, Luke chapter 17. Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, hey, when that happens, when Jerusalem is being destroyed, if you're out in the fields, don't come back for your stuff. 
That's the point Jesus is making is if you're out in the field, don't come back for your stuff. Don't come back. And then he throws in, remember Lot's wife. The fact that Jesus put Lot's wife in that context would suggest she didn't look back. And I would even suggest she didn't go back to her children and want to save them. The way Jesus uses Lot's wife is to suggest that she went back because she couldn't leave her stuff. And so Lot perhaps lost his very wife because she was so tied to Sodom, she couldn't leave it. So we know he lost at least two daughters, at least two sons-in-law, perhaps sons, a wife, all because he pitched his tent towards Sodom and was curious about what was going on there. Maybe you're strong enough to get out of Sodom, but perhaps it costs your children. I have a friend who spent his summers as a youth um, repairing fences at a cattle ranch. And he would say the problem is that the cows would stick their heads through the fence to lick the grass on the other side. And in so doing, they would make an opening in the fence. Now, the cow didn't ever get out. But guess what did get out? The calves. So the cow, because they wanted the grass on the other side of the fence, would actually lose the calves on an application level as parents, sometimes we may struggle with our testimony and we may, and I know individuals that have done this, that have spent years out of the church while they're struggling and then they come back, you know, they have a religious experience or they feel the spirit and they come back and they're doing great. But like you say, that gap period, what about those kids? So if you're having questions about things, I mean, if you're having doubts, like we all do, I would encourage you to continue to attend your meetings and go with your kids. Stay on the covenant path and stay faithful. I think that is a moral that you can pull out of these very difficult and challenging stories. Even the two daughters that go with him to to Zor clearly learn some Sodom-like behavior. You'll notice the footnotes that they're doing wickedly. This was not a righteous act. Now, speaking of those two daughters and what happens in that cave, Mike, the Bible makes a big deal out of their seed and Moab, and I want you to tell us about that story. Yeah, this is kind of another difficult story where you get to the end of the 19th chapter, and the the city's been destroyed, according to the text, and the firstborn of verse 31 says to her younger sister, our father is old, and there's not a man in the earth to come into us after the manner of of all the earth. So they say in verse 30, come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And then the next day, the next child does it. And so now both of Lot's daughters are with child. Verse 36 says that they're with child by their father. Now, this is a very difficult and troubling passage. Like, why is this in the Bible? A lot of people are disgusted by these things being in the text. And the question I often ask is, well, why is this in here? And so the author is clearly writing from another time period. This is an author looking back. And so the author says in verse 37, the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami, the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. And so from some scholars' perspectives, 
this can be read as an etiological tale. What is an etiological tale? An etiological tale is just a way of trying to explain the world, why things happen. And so if a child were to ask their parents in the ancient Near East, mom, dad, who are the Moabites? And why are they bad? Yeah. Why, why are they our enemy? Why do we not like these guys? Well, let me tell you a story, son. Let yeah. me paint them as the villain. Now, it's also important to know that these are kindred cultures, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and their inscriptions confirm that they both spoke kindred Semitic languages and that they were much closer to Hebrew than to Aramaic. And so according to our narrative, the two peoples appear on the scene of history rather late, uh, as indicated by their absence from the table of nations. I mean, if you go back and read Genesis 10, they're not there, but the archeological surveys have determined that around 1900 BC, the Transjordan civilization was extinguished. Sedentary life in the area did not resume on a firm basis until about the 14th century. And so a century later, when Israelites were just settling in Canaan, right around the 14th century, Moab and Ammon were already organized as monarchies in the Transjordan area. And so there's maps on this, but the idea is that they were there, Moab and Ammon, when the Israelites were coming into the land of Canaan. And this is in harmony with the inference from our story that Israel is younger than these two nations. And so it's difficult to understand the point of this episode unless we see this story as part of the patriarchal narrative trying to explain why the kingdoms of Moab and Ammon exist. And our hostiles and our enemies. It's like they, we want to paint them as a villain so that their origin kind of, you know, draws shame upon them. Yeah, like we have a similar language to them, but why do we not like them? And so one of my favorite scholars, James Kugel, says this is clearly an etiological element, a nasty swipe at these two nations. The story well accounts for the fact that the Ammonites and Moabites speak a language similar to the Israelites, and they're related to them in other ways. Other scholars agree that this is a story to try to explain who they are. Now, we put in the show notes a counter-argument to Kugel's, so you can read it for yourself and decide for yourself. But I'm going to say, as I read this, I see this as a story to try to explain to the modern audience that hearing these stories during the time of the monarchy, why do we have things the way they are? Why is Moab this way? Why are the Ammonites this way? And how do we look at them? And if you can denigrate their forefathers, if you can denigrate the founder of their nation, it's a way to paint a picture in history. I remember being a child growing up, going to school, learning about the founding fathers, and I had a distinct perception of the British based on the histories I was told as a child. And so just know that I think that's kind of what's going on in the end of the 19th chapter. That all being said, I think the main thing here is really kind of a cool thread. You see, Moab, verse 37 of chapter 19, is the ancestor to a fascinating character in the Old Testament, and that character is Ruth. If you go to the book of Ruth, we read that she is from Moab. She's an outsider, and she marries a man by the name of Boaz. And if you go to the end of the fourth chapter, we read that the house of David comes from Ruth. One of the greatest and most glorious characters in the history of the kingdom of Israel was a descendant of a Moabite. So it's important to note that there's this tension in the Old Testament. Are the outsiders of Israel, how do we view them? A lot of times they're portrayed negatively, but there's also these golden threads in the text. The book of Ruth opens up this idea that outsiders are also important to the Lord. And the king 
of Israel, David, the Davidic king. And then later, Jesus is a descendant of David. So Jesus's lineage history is coming through this tragic story. And I call this the beauty for ashes principle. And I love this verse. This is Isaiah 61.3. And Isaiah 61.3 is trying to tell us this story that through tragic circumstances, beauty can come to pass. And this to me, chapter 19, the end is really tragic. But I think you can end on this beautiful note of the grandeur of Jesus. So here it is, Isaiah 61.3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness. We're back to trees again. The planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Isaiah 61 verse 3 is opening up this idea that the Messiah can trade beauty for ashes. The Messiah's first miracle, at least as a mortal being, was to turn water into wine. In fact, dirty washing water, hand washing water into wine. And that's what Jesus does. He takes plain, ordinary, dirty water and makes it sweet and refined and wonderful. He did that in Jackson County. He does that in all of our lives. He turns the ashes into beauty. It's just a beautiful thing. And and if you're coming from a background where your life story or your ancestry is a little bit sketchy, I'll never forget this principle hitting my heart one time when one of my friends um, had adopted some children that came from a really bad background. And these little children, and through no fault of their own, but they were born in a horrible circumstance, and he adopted these children. And I'll never forget the feeling I felt when he bless these children. And there was a line in the blessing that just burned into my heart. And the line was this. He, he told them, your origin story is not who you are. You are a child of God. And I just want to just say, "Amen." that's how I read the end of Genesis 19. The, there's more to life than this story. And it goes through Ruth and then to Jesus. Okay. We're going to skip the 20th chapter of Genesis, and the reason why is because this is part of a triplet called the wife-sister motif, or the sacrifice of Sarah. We talked about the sacrifice of Sarah last time with Pharaoh. It appears here again. Uh, To get a little bit nerdy, this is what's called the Elohist narrative, and according to scholars, this is the first occurrence in the text from the E source, or the northern source. I'm going to call the Elohist source, frankly... Lehi's stuff. I think the brass plates with their Egyptian roots from northern tribes, when you read how scholars describe the Elohist source, oh, we're talking about Lehi's stuff. So does Lehi's stuff have the creation? Mm-hmm. Does it have Adam and Eve? Yep, we know that from the Book of Mormon. And so this is the first time the redactor is going to put in a story from the northern text. But we've already done this because we've done it with Jay, the, the Yahwist earlier. And it's going to happen again because there's triplets. Um, as a side note, If you're interested in the show notes, we give you a link where we chart the triplets and doublets in the narrative, and there's a ton of them. There's 18 reduplications just in the book of Genesis, so you can go check that out. But Genesis 20 is a repeat, so we're going to skip Genesis 20. We're now going to go to Genesis 21. 
Genesis 21 is when the long-promised day finally arrives. A full quarter of a century has passed since Abraham has heard the divine call, promising him great posterity. If you go back to Genesis 12, 4, it's been about 25 years. And so during this course of time, he received repeated affirmations that this pledge would be fulfilled but he's been facing constant disappointment and constant troubles. But at last, finally, now, the day is going to arrive when he is going to have the promised son where the covenant line can be fulfilled. And so this is the birth of Isaac in chapter 21 of Genesis. Which is really interesting, Mike, because he was promised land long before he ever stepped foot in it. He was promised a seed long before Isaac was ever born. And I think that's the pattern of the Lord is trust and faith in promises. Many of you have been given promises in your patriarchal blessing that have not yet been fulfilled, and yet we hold on to those promises. We hold on to the trust that, yes, someday these blessings will be mine, even if I don't see that they've come right now. Yeah, excellent. Genesis 21 verse 7 gives the song of Sarah. It's this song which testifies of the greatness of God. I'm just going to read verse 7. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. It's an utterance of Sarah that has the form of a song. And it's beautiful the way it flows. It consists of three short clauses with three words each. And we put it in the show notes so you can see how it flows. And it's a song which testifies of the greatness of God. Now, the rest of this chapter is a difficult chapter because there's tension between Hagar and Sarah. And it says in verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Some translators translate mocking as playing, and it's another pun on Isaac's name. Ishmael was Isaacing, or taking the place of Isaac. Um, sahaking, I, I guess is a way you could say it. It's a pun on that word, sahak, and we don't know what it means. And so some scholars look at this and say, is he bullying Isaac? Others look at it and say, is he trying to take the place of Isaac? Is this Hagar and Ishmael making a play for the birthright blessings? And we just don't know. It's just really vague. One commentator wrote, let's just turn to the Hebrew for the answer. If you know the letters, you can recognize that the word Metzahek has the same root as Yitzhak. Therefore, it can be read as a verb formed from the root of Isaac's name. Sarah saw that Ishmael was Isaacing, whatever that might mean. Probably Ishmael was trying to take Isaac's place. So that's one commentator's attempt to try to understand it. But like we said, it's a little bit vague. But here's what we can read from this. There's tension between Hagar and Sarah. And so Sarah's going to tell Abraham, hey, we've got to fix this. And so here's what happens. Verse 12, God said to Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of the bondwoman. And all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. Well, what does she say? Verse 10, this is what she says, cast out this bondwoman and her son. This is difficult stuff. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And so in verse 12, the Lord says to Abraham, cast him out. 
Verse 13, and also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. And so Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, put it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And then she's going to see an angel. Which is another marvelous story of God and his nature in the Old Testament. And so here we have this wonderful phrase in the story of Hagar. Now, Abraham has done all that he could to help her. Here's as much food as I think you can take. Take this food. But Hagar won out. Now, I don't know the whole story, but the Lord pushed her. And then, verse 15, the water was spent in the bottle. She can't go any further. She has gone as far as she can go. And this is the moment where the Lord steps in and says, Hagar, I have heard you. And just then, remember, there's no water in the bottle. The Lord steps in and says, Hagar, look up. Lift up your head and look. In verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad to drink. There's something about the Lord allowing us to go as long as we can. And then he steps in. Joseph Smith said, by proving contraries, truth is revealed. And God exists not just in an, is he A or B? He's both A and B. And it's that tension that causes us to say, okay, I need to understand my Heavenly Father by understanding he is both A and B. Now, there are other times when the Lord is just abundantly merciful. But kind of in this moment, the Lord says, that's going to help you appreciate and understand if you can't bear chastisement, you can't have the kingdom. So we're going to see in the sacrifice of Isaac that God is a loving, kind God, but he's a testing God as well. He's going to test us. He's going to ask Abraham to do some very difficult things. So here's another tension that we see that God is very quick to relieve pain and very quick to help. But there's another side to that, and that is that he pushes us to do what we can to take care of ourselves. And you see this all over the scriptures. For example, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to them, remove the stone. Now, compared to raising the dead, how hard was it to remove a stone? But they can't raise the dead. Only he can. But they can remove the stone. So he says, you do what you can do, and then I'll do what you can't do. And there's a hard balance for us to understand that the Lord is going to push us to almost the very limit of what we can do, and then he's going to step in. For example, the day he feeds the 5,000 in the New Testament— Now, do you remember the Jews were wanting Messiah that would just relieve them of all temporal challenges? And here comes Jesus, and he feeds the 5,000. And they, after that, say, this is the guy. We're going to follow him. He's going to make our lives easier. And then the very next thing he does is he walks on the water in the fourth watch. So he makes his disciples row for nine hours. The fourth watch started at 3 a.m., And they got on that boat at 6 p.m. They have been rowing for nine hours when he finally walks on the water. So at what point does God come to them? Why didn't he wait another hour? 
And I would suggest to you he didn't because they couldn't go another hour. So why didn't he come an hour earlier? And I would suggest to you because they still had an hour in them. And so in many times of our lives, not always, but in many times of our lives, the Lord holds back his blessing so that we can strengthen our muscles by rowing as long as we can. Any of you who have lifted weights know that the real benefit comes after you would have given up. It's that last rep, the one that you probably, had you had your choice, would have put the bar down. But your spotter says, nope, keep going. Those are the ones that really bring strength. And so the Lord, a brilliant spotter, often says in our life, keep going, keep rowing. And so look at how often he kind of pushes us to the limit. We're going to get to Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. God sent Elijah to save this widow. But what was she doing when Elijah showed up? She was gathering sticks to make her final meal. How far had the Lord pushed her to say, you go as far as you can, and then I'll be there? When did the light come to Joseph Smith? He was about to give in and felt like he was being consumed by the darkness. And then it says, at the moment of greatest alarm, that's when the light came. So those of you who are rowing in the second watch or those of you who are rowing at 2.30 a.m. and you're saying, where is God? Maybe one of the reasons he's watching and waiting is because he knows you still have strength. So I would say to you, you keep rowing. You keep rowing until the water in the bottle is spent and trust that he'll be there that there's wisdom in God that I keep stretching my muscles and I row as long as I can. And I'm going to do as much as I can to solve my problems. But the moment I'm spent, the moment there's no more water in the bottle, I trust that God will be there. We're going to see it as the Israelites march into the promised land and they have to cross the Jordan River. And the Lord says, look, I'll part the river for you. But do you remember when the river parted? The river parted when they stepped into it. So many of us kind of sit on the banks waiting for God to solve our problems, waiting for the Lord to make clear what my path is and how do I, how do I move forward, Lord? How, what do I do next? And we sit there on the bank hoping the Lord will part the river first, and that's not what happens. You march forward. You step into that river. The Jaredites, instead of waiting for four years on the beach, should have started building barges. They knew how because the Lord had already taught them. And sometimes we sit there on the beach for four years or we wait there on the bank waiting for the Lord to part the river. And the message is, you move forward until there's no more water in the bottle trusting that when you hit that point, the Lord will be there and he'll open your eyes and show you where the well of water is. He will come to you in the fourth watch. Of that I testify, but I also understand that that means we're going to row a little bit, maybe a lot. So keep rowing until the water is spent in the bottle.
that sermon level, breaking down this verse, I think really speaks to me and can speak to many of Latter-day Saints wondering, you know, how to read Genesis 21. I think a literal reading of Genesis 21, a Peshat level reading where you're just reading through the text, can cause readers to ask lots of questions. I mean, this doesn't seem fair. What's going on with Hagar? Why does Sarah treat her this way? At that level, it can cause a lot of questions. I think if we read it, how can this speak to my soul? I think that's a good reading. I do want to acknowledge some of the complexities of chapter 21, and I don't do this to be derogatory. I do this to try to understand the text. I see chapter 21 having lots of complex issues, trying to explain origins. Clearly, it's fragmented. I mean, if you were telling this story to your family and this was your family story, there's a lot of holes. And your listeners would ask questions and say, well, what happened next? And what about this? And I really do think that when this story was originally told, it isn't what we have here. I think we can all accept that, that the Bible is kind of messy. But then after this experience where God opens her eyes and she has this child, right? This child in the wilderness, verse 20, and that's Ishmael, that became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. And then we just skip to this strife between Abimelech and Abraham. And we just kind of drop Ishmael. And he's just kind of like not there anymore in the chapter. And then in verse 22, to the end, we have this tension between Abimelech. And then it talks about that he's a Philistine. I mean, go to verse 32, after they work out their tension and they have this covenant meal together at Beersheba, it says in verse 32, they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech arose and Fickal, the chief captain of his host, and they returned to the land of the Philistines and Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba. Now there's a lot going on there, but I just want to make note of this, that the Philistines historically are not even in Israel in Abraham's day. They get there around 1200 BC. According to all the historical sources we have and the archaeological evidence that we have, they're not there for 700 years. Now, I don't have a problem with this because I see this as being textualized after the Philistines get there. The Philistines get there around 1200, the monarchy's around 1000. This story was probably put to paper during the monarchy. Well, who are the enemies of the Israelites during the monarchy? The Philistines are. And so however this story was told, or however it may have originally been written, Abraham's enemy is going to be dressed up in the garb of the Philistines. That's how they're going to portray them. Now, that's not the main point, but we're just pointing out some of the complexities. Like we said earlier, when we skipped chapter 20, there's repeats in here. Why? Because the Bible is multiple sourced. Now, I do want to say that from the 22nd verse to the end of the chapter, just kind of relax your eyes and look at what happens. We have this strife. We're fighting over water. A covenant is made at the well of the seven, Beersheba is the well of the seven. I mean, it's even in the footnote. Look in footnote 31a. And then verse 33, what does Abraham do? He plants a tree. And so if we relax our eyes a little bit, we see overcoming the sea or overcoming the chaos. We see a covenant meal. We see a tree and we see a covenant. What is that? That's the first Israelite temple. It's right there, but it's just kind of coded out and we have to kind of like sort through it. And so however you want to read 21, it's pretty cool stuff, but it's also pretty messy. The Bible is kind of messy. But with that, we're going to go to chapter 22. And to me, like if I only had, if somebody said, okay, Mike Day, you have chapters 18 to 23, you've got 20 minutes. 
what are you going to teach? Bryce, what would you teach? You go right to 22 and talk about the sacrifice of Isaac and the type that that is. So we're going to end with 22 as kind of our culmination, but that will leave us 23. So will you let us jump forward and do 23 right now, the burial of Sarah? Then we'll come back to 22 and end with that powerful message of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, and that beautiful moment where Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. So let's get to 23. Yeah. Chapter 23 is the death of Sarah in this cave where she's buried. And first of all, I just want to call out the irony that God has promised Abraham this land and that his seed will have this land, and he doesn't even have a place to bury his wife. Just let the irony just sit there. According to the text of of verse 1 of the 23rd chapter, she dies when she's 127, and he weeps for her. And I find this a fascinating verse, verse 2. And Sarah died, and then you can have a fun time saying that word, Kirjat Arba, the, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And it says he was engaging in sabhat, which is a term meaning bewailing the dead, that first term there. And it's associated with the traditional mourning customs of ancient Israel, such as rending your garments and messing up your hair and cutting your beard and putting dust on your head and fasting. And so the second term that's used is from the root baka, and it's suggesting that Abraham was also weeping for joy. Now, it's translated as that he's weeping for her. But if you look in other passages, Baca is connected to something else. Go to Genesis 33, just really quick. See how this verb is used? So in Genesis 33, 4, this is after Esau and Jacob have been estranged for a number of years. It says in verse 4 that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And in that verse, they wept is the same root of that word. And it refers to Jacob and Esau at their reunion, and it's this joyful weeping. And then one more, I want you just to see this one. Go to the 45th chapter of Genesis. To me, this is one of the main points of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis really is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I always like to say it's written in code. But if you look in the 14th verse, this is when Joseph is revealing himself you know, to his brothers after they've been estranged for so long. And it says in verse 14 that he fell upon his brother's Benjamin's neck and they wept. So another way to think of this is to think about the happy rejoicing that takes place when you're so happy for that individual because they finished the race. Their mortal life has ended and they ended their life facing Zion. And part of me sees this weeping for joy as a celebration of her life. And I would throw in, Mike, Doctrine and Covenants section 42, the Lord says, Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. The reason we weep and we hurt so much is because we love so much. It is a celebration of our love that causes us to weep. Yeah. I'm fascinated to watch the brokenheartedness of Abraham, but it tells me how much he loved Sarah. And we weep for the loss of them that die. Yeah. Sarah is a big deal in Abraham's life. I just love these words. And I really see Bryce, he's mourning for her in both ways, the traditional way, but it's also a time of rejoicing. 
like a weeping for joy. And I don't have the text of Moses 7, like the original language, but when I read about the people of Enoch embracing the people of the last days that made it through that mess, I see that word, that weeping for joy. So that's 23, where he buries his wife. And it's beautiful, but I really see Bryce 22. This is the gold. This is the story where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, reads as follows. And it came to pass after these things that God did try or did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. So in Jewish tradition, Mount Moriah, this place where Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, is this rock that's revered as the rock of sacrifice on which Abraham, to prove his faith, prepared to offer his son Isaac nearly 4,000 years ago. And traditionally, it's the foundation stone, the Eben Shatia, the foundation stone of the Holy of Holies, Jerusalem's most sacred holy ground. And in the slides, we actually give you some pictures that you can see to see how that stone, that rock of sacrifice, was the foundation to the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. This is how a lot of traditional Jews look at this text, is they see this as the foundation stone, the navel of the earth, the place under the Holy of Holies. It's really kind of great cosmic imagery. Now, another thing briefly, this is not the main thing, but I think it's important to note this, is that the word the mountains, haharim, and moriah is a word play. We're playing with words, and the author is doing this deliberately, I believe, this bit of wordplay is to make it sacred. The ancients often used wordplay, and the more of it that they used, and the more types they used, the more sacred the story. And so the mountains and Moriah is some wordplay with the text, and we give it to you in the show notes. You can read it for yourself. But then if you note in this text of Genesis 22, it's almost like a repeat of some of the stuff happening in Genesis 12 where at Moray, at the oracle of the teacher, Abraham is taught. And here at Moriah, he is taught again. In Genesis 12, 1, it says, go forth to the land I will show you. And in Genesis 22, 2, it says, go forth to the land of Moriah. Both Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, the precise ultimate destination of where Abraham's to go is withheld by God. He doesn't tell him. And think about how that applies to our life. At the end of the Moray narrative in Genesis 12, 7, at the end of Genesis 22 and verses 16 through 19, both of these events end in the promises of posterity. Both promises are given at very similar sounding places. You have Moray and you have Moriah. Both sites have Abraham building an altar. Genesis 12, 7 and Genesis 22, 9 have him building an altar. And I don't think this is by accident. I think the point that the author is trying to make is that through these sacrifices and through these experiences, Abraham is learning about himself and he's learning about the nature of God and it's drenched in imagery of the temple. So I think it's really important to read Genesis 22 and the first seven verses of Genesis 12 through a lens of the temple and through a lens that sees both of these passages 
talking about many of the same things. And I think if we read it this way, it can unlock both texts and we can look at them with fresh eyes. And so with that, let's look at Genesis 22 from another perspective. And you kind of have to look at it two ways. So let me separate the story into two points that are both worth making. The story of Abraham is going to teach the reality that God is going to test us. You know, sometimes Christians speak of Jesus that he's all love, that he's all peace, and let's just get along, and let's just love our enemies, and let's have peace and harmony. And they sometimes push that a little too far to help us think that everything we're going to get from God is support and love, and, and he's going to wipe away all the tears from all our eyes. But there's another tension here. We are here to be tested. God has tremendous blessings he'd like to give us. But we cannot have the power that God possesses until we will do with it what God does. And so if all you see is a God that is just kind and loving and would never harm anyone, you're going to struggle a little bit with the Lord that, as it says in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19, even as the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, even as a child does submit to his father. So we shouldn't be surprised if we're in for some tough tests. We are here to see if we can endure the challenges and the tribulations that come before the blessings. We're here to make sure that I will do with God's power what God does with his power. Joseph Smith said, as quoted by John Taylor, God will feel after you. And he will take hold of you, and he will wrench your very heartstrings. And if you cannot stand it, you're not going to be fit for an inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, if you don't pass this test, he can't give you his glory. Imagine giving your entire inheritance to a child who has never learned discipline, never learned hard work. He's going to take your entire inheritance and completely waste it. And so Heavenly Father says, I have so much I'd like to give you, but we're going to be tested. I remind you that the Lord said in the Doctrine and Covenants, after the tribulation come the blessings. He said we need to be faithful in tribulation. He told Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, if you endure it well, you will be exalted above all your foes. And I've thought a lot about that. I wasn't in Liberty Jail. I wasn't in Jackson County. But Joseph from Liberty Jail said the following, And now, beloved brethren, we say unto you that inasmuch as God hath said that he would have a tried people, that he would purge them as gold, now we think that this time he has chosen his own crucible wherein we have been tried. And we think if we get through with any degree of safety and shall have kept the faith, that it will be assigned to this generation altogether sufficient to leave them without excuse. And we think also it will be a trial of our faith equal to that of Abraham, and that the ancients will not have whereof to boast over us in the day of judgment as being called to pass through heavier afflictions, that we may hold an even weight in the balance with them. And I would suggest that whatever trial the Lord puts you through, Living in our day and being moral and obedient and following covenants of God, I would suggest, is a trial equal to Abraham. 
that whatever trial God hands you, if you are faithful, I think every one of you can also say, like Joseph, and we think also it will be a trial of our faith equal to that of Abraham, and that the ancients will not have whereof to boast over us. So make sure at some point, if you're talking to your family, if you're teaching a Sunday school class, that may be a wonderful conversation that they need to understand, the testing of Abraham. Now, the other side of this story is a beautiful moment to pause and help us understand that Abraham is teaching us something about Heavenly Father giving us Christ. Knowing and contemplating what it must have been like for Abraham to march towards Mount Moriah, and knowing what's going to happen on top of that mountain, helps us understand what Heavenly Father went through, knowing what was going to happen to his son. As you read this story, you're going to find all sorts of connections, how Jesus is like Isaac. Jesus carried his cross, Isaac carries the wood, and so many things. And we have a really good slide in the slides that shows the typology of Isaac's sacrifice, how his birth was prophesied of, as Jesus's was, and his miracle birth. I mean, parents having him in their old age is a miracle birth, like Jesus's birth was a miracle. It's a three-day journey. Isaac says, here I am. We read in Abraham 3.27, here I am, send me. As a result of this sacrifice, Abraham has promised innumerable seed in Genesis 22.17. And as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus will have innumerable seed in a Benedite discourse in Mosiah 15.10-12. So this is a beautiful rendition of typology. And he's even called the only son. This is a type of Christ. And so with that as a backdrop to this story of Genesis 22, there's another way to read this, and it's reading this through the lens of how did Heavenly Father experience this? What was his perspective as the Savior of the world atoned for our sins? Now, the very best rendition of this came from Elder Melvin J. Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and I love that it was reprinted in the New Era, a magazine for youth. He said the following, It is written in the scriptures that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for the world, that whosoever believes on him and keeps his commandments shall be saved. While we give nothing perhaps for this atonement and this sacrifice, nevertheless, it has cost someone something. And I love to contemplate what it cost our Father in heaven to give us the gift of his beloved son. I think as I read the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, that our father is trying to tell us what it cost him to give his son as a gift to the world. Our father in heaven went through all that and more, for in his case the hand was not stayed. He loved his son Jesus Christ better than Abraham ever loved Isaac. For the Father had with him his Son, our Redeemer, in the eternal worlds, faithful and true for ages, standing in a place of trust and honor. And the Father loved him dearly, and yet he allowed his well-beloved Son to descend from his place of glory and honor, where millions did him homage, down to the earth, a condescension that is not within the power of man to conceive." God heard the cry of his son in that moment of great grief and agony in the garden 
When it is said, the pores of his body opened up and drops of blood stood upon him, and he cried out, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. I ask you, what father and mother could stand by and listen to the cry of their children in distress in this world and not render aid and assistance? We cannot stand by and listen to those cries without it touching our hearts. The father looked on with great grief and agony over his beloved son until there seems to have come a moment when even our Savior cried out in despair, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that hour, I think I can see our dear father behind the veil looking upon these dying struggles until even he could not endure it any longer. And like the mother who bids farewell to her dying child has to be taken out of the room so as to not look upon the last struggles, so he bowed his head and hid in some part of his universe, his great heart almost breaking for the love that he had for his son. Oh, in that moment when he might have saved his son, I thank him and praise him that he did not fail us. For he had not only the love of his son in mind, but he also had love for us. I rejoice that he did not interfere and that his love for us made it possible for him to endure to look upon the suffering of his son and give him finally to us, our Savior and our Redeemer. Will you ponder that this week? And will you remember that, especially when Isaac says, My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. With that, we close this week's episode and thank you for spending some time with us. May you be grateful that a loving God didn't stop it and gave him to us. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.